Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your guest host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. In today's episode, we're joined by Celeste Duke and Joan Farrell, content editors and analysts from HR Hero, the customizable all-in-one cloud-based platform and asset for today's HR professional, offering expert legal analysis, guidance, training, and best-in-class tools to help you, the HR professional, be the best in your workday. As past contributors to great content that you may have previously seen on the online publication HR Daily Advisor, we've asked Celeste and Joan to join us today and share some recent trends that we're seeing in the workplace around the ever-so-important topics of workplace discrimination and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging within the modern workforce. Celeste, Joan, thanks for joining the HR Works podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. So before we get started and really talk about the trends we're seeing in all things, again, workplace discrimination and DEIB, I want to get you introduced to our audience. So Celeste, why don't you get us started and just tell us a bit about your background and what led you to working with HR Hero? So I've been with the company for 17 years now, but I will say that I came to HR like a lot of people came to HR. I did not start anywhere near HR. Um, I thought I was going to be an English teacher, and then I thought I was going to be a journalist, and then I started working for a company that provided HR services and became very interested in all of it, and um, things kind of all tied together. I was able to get my SPHR, and about 12 years ago in our company, I was able to start focusing on diversity. So I've been able to really follow diversity programs and just the concept of diversity as a strategy in the workplace as it's really developed over the last decade. Um, And that's been really interesting. So now here I am, I am our DEI subject matter expert and I just, I really enjoy looking at how it applies to the workplace and how it can make the workplace better for employees. So yeah, that's how I got here. That's great. It's a a great path. I love asking this question to any of our guests because everyone's got their unique path into the HR community. Joan, how about yourself? Do you mind sharing your background and what led you to finding your career in the HR space? Sure. Working in the legal field is kind of my second career. My background is in education and social work, but I started working in the legal department of a multi-state company when I was in law school. When I graduated, I was fortunate they hired me as an attorney, and that's where I started working in employment law, which I love because it's about people. So when I heard about an opportunity to work at HR Hero, writing about employment law for employers, I thought, well, that's that's the perfect combination for me. Love writing, love employment law, love to uh, help employers learn what they need to know. And it's been great. Uh, I think it's been 16 years that I've been here. And in the areas that I focus on in discrimination and harassment, there is almost always something new happening. So I very much enjoy it. Never dull. That's great to hear. And and yeah, it all goes back to just finding that passion and tapping into that passion that leads you down your career path. So thank you both for sharing that. Now, let's jump right into what we've got you on here to talk about today. And that's just all that's happening right now in the world of workplace discrimination and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. 
it's a great time to cover so many of these matters within the HR space as so much is happening in the workforce and just in modern times that are impacting these issues. So let's get started jumping in. And just, if you don't mind, give us a bit of background to the history of diversity issues under the law and as they relate to employer DEI programs. Well, um, diversity initiatives have grown in popularity in the past 10 years or so, but probably the first diversity initiatives were in the 1960s, shortly after Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was enacted. And Title VII is a federal law. It applies to employers with 15 or more employees. And there are five protected groups in Title VII. It prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, national origin, and sex. And over the years, as with any laws, um, the courts have interpreted the extent of Title VII protections and what's required under the law. So um, when decisions about Title VII are made by the U.S. Supreme Court, they apply nationwide. And there have been a couple cases that were interesting In one, the court looked at religious accommodation, which is required under Title VII, and it involved a a job applicant and a retail clothing store. The job applicant was a Muslim woman. She wore a headscarf as a religious practice, so she was wearing it when she interviewed for the job. And the store had a dress code that prohibited head coverings, but no one talked about the policy or the applicant's headscarf during the interview, but she wasn't hired. So she filed a charge of religious discrimination with the EEOC, and ultimately the Supreme Court held that it's unlawful for an employer to take an adverse employment action like refusing to hire somebody because the employer thinks the person will need a religious accommodation. So it expanded that responsibility for religious accommodation. And religious accommodations come into play in a lot of different situations in the workplace. Some employers have been managing a lot of requests for religious accommodation in the past couple of years in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccine requirements. Absolutely. In another case that just a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court expanded the definition of sex discrimination under Title VII to include discrimination based on sexual orientation or transgender status. And at the time, there were several states that had laws prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, but the court's decision provides Title VII discrimination protections for employees nationwide. So Title VII continues to evolve as courts continue to interpret its terms. Thank you for giving that background. I think that gives us some really good groundwork to look at the current trends that we're seeing in workplace diversity efforts. So what are we seeing as of late? What are some of the latest trends that we're seeing in workplace diversity? Well, I would say one of the most recent and quickly expanding trends relates to hair discrimination. Right now, there are 18 states that prohibit employment discrimination based on traits that are historically related to race, including hairstyles and hair textures. And these laws started being passed at the state level in 2019 in an effort to combat discrimination based on hairstyles like afros and braids and twists that primarily affect Black women in the employment context. And 
Not surprisingly, California was the first state to enact a law prohibiting employment discrimination based on protected hairstyles. And what they did was they expanded the definition of race in the law to include traits historically associated with race, like texture and uh, protective hairstyles like braids and locks and twists. Most recently, Massachusetts enacted a law that includes, in addition to protective hairstyles, it includes hair type and hair length. And some states have added um, protection for hair wraps and hair coverings, including wigs. So they're all a little bit different. And some people think the laws are unnecessary because race and national origin are already protected. But there have been court decisions that found that discrimination because of hairstyle, even if the style is primarily associated with a certain race, isn't protected under Title VII. There was a case in the 11th Circuit where um, an employer's ban on dreadlocks was upheld by the court because the court said it was a cultural practice and not a characteristic that's protected under Title VII. So... Employers need to be aware of the applicable state and local laws because there may be legal consequences for employment decisions based on a person's hairstyle and because employers need to check their dress codes or their personal appearance policies because they might need to be updated to reflect the, the changes in the laws. That's really interesting, Joan. So, and this all ties back to what's more commonly known as the Crown Act, correct? Yes. Okay. Celeste, I understand that you've got some more background just to provide on the Crown Act and what we're seeing in the workplace as a result. Sure. Yes. So the Crown Act is actually part of a national coalition aimed at securing protections for race-based hairstyles in workplaces and public schools. Dove, the brand, is part of the Crown Act, and you may remember some commercials that they've run um, talking about natural hairstyles and supporting the idea that natural hairstyles should be protected. Um, Some states have passed the Crown Act, which stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. That's what Crown stands for. Mm -hmm. Okay. They've passed that as the Crown Act, separate from their discrimination laws. Some, as Joan was talking about, have amended their current discrimination laws to expand the definition of race to include these hairstyles. But the movement Um, whether it's the Crown Act itself or the definition of race in these laws, the movement behind the Crown Act grew out of a Michigan State University research study that revealed that Black women are 80% more likely to be sent home from work because of their hairstyle, and one and a half times more likely than white women to report that they had to change their hairstyle to fit in at the workplace. Another study from Duke University found that participants viewed black hairstyles like afros, twists, or braids as less professional and that black women with natural hairstyles are less likely to land job interviews than white women or black women with straightened hair. Um, It's possible that you've also seen the videos of students being forced to cut their hair before they're allowed to participate in a sporting event at school um, due to rules made, you know, many years ago before this was even part of the conversation about what is a quote-unquote acceptable hairstyle. The Crown Act and similar statutes would apply in both places, um, as Joan said. So in light of these laws, and to ensure that you are creating a safe space where all employees feel like they are seen and safe, you should review your dress and grooming policies and remove any stereotypical references to hairstyles 
commonly associated with race and national origin as being quote unquote unprofessional or inappropriate for the workplace. That's some great insight, Celeste, uh, and certainly some good advice for our listeners who may be working on handbook updates within their own organizations just to more closely adhere to the Crown Act, whether it is in state legislature, but also just as you're looking to more closely align with those efforts in the workplace. I think that's, that's some great advice. Exactly. I mean, you know, even if it's not in your state yet, there's a good chance that it's coming. Um, but even if it doesn't come, it's just a really simple, easy way to show people in your workplace that you're serious about your diversity, your DEI initiatives, and that, um, like I said, that people are safe and seen and that you care about them. Absolutely. One last thing on that, it would be a good idea to add um, avoidance of hair discrimination to your supervisor and manager training, especially if you're changing your policy right now, and this is a change in policy, make sure your managers know that this is where we stand on this issue. Yeah, uh, some great insights, some great advice there. Thanks, Celeste. So it was mentioned that there's been a lot of activity involving the Crown Act, specifically at the state and local level, but do you think there's anything coming in terms of action at the federal level? Well, there has been some activity in Congress. In uh, March, the House of Representatives passed the Crown Act, and there were 14 Republicans that joined with the Democrats to support the legislation. So it's it's passed in the House. It may be more challenging to pass the bill in the Senate because uh, in order to avoid a filibuster, there at least 10 Republicans would have to join with all the Democrats uh, to pass the bill. But I, I think the fact that there's federal legislation is an indication that the need for the law has been recognized at the federal level. Right. It's gaining enough traction that it has moved up to the federal level. I think it's a sign of just where trends are going in terms of diversity and discrimination in the workplace. And bringing that up at the federal level is a good sign of where we're headed. Right. So are there any other laws where you're seeing states from all parts of the political spectrum weighing in and passing laws? Yes. Yeah. There has been a lot of activity on the state level with pay equity and pay transparency. Every state in the United States now has an equal pay law on the books. And the equal pay laws generally require employers to provide equal pay for equal work, regardless of sex. Now, some states have expanded their equal pay laws to cover all the characteristics that are protected under their fair employment laws. So depending on the state, that might include age and race and sexual orientation and gender identity and religion. And some states have expanded pay equity laws by restricting salary history inquiries and adding pay transparency requirements. So in terms of salary history inquiries, the idea behind the restrictions on questions about an applicant's pay history is that women and minorities have been paid historically less. So basing a new employee's pay on their pay history just kind of keeps that cycle going. So equal pay day for women in the U.S. this year was March 15. And that's the estimated date to which the average woman needs to work to earn what an average non-Hispanic white male earned in 2021. And Black women's equal pay day was September 21st. So 
pay history laws typically prohibit employers from asking about a job applicant's pay history. Not surprisingly, each state's law is a little bit different. Um, some allow employers to ask about an applicant's pay expectations. Some allow employers to confirm pay history after they've made a job offer that includes compensation. And in terms of pay transparency, there are several states that now require employers to provide job applicants with the pay range for a job if the applicant asks for it. A couple of states like Colorado and Washington and most recently California have taken the step of requiring employers to provide pay range information upfront in their job postings. So in addition to the information that's usually in a job advertisement like job responsibilities and qualifications, employers in these states are required to provide the pay range information for the job. Yep, and New York City has a requirement that will take effect on November 1st. New York State has a law that was passed by the legislature, but the business groups have asked the governor to amend the law before she signs it. So it sounds like some kind of pay range disclosure law is coming in New York too. Yeah, it seems like that's really becoming a growing trend, as you mentioned, statewide and really picking up momentum. Both, I'm sure that that's advantageous for many companies as they're trying to attract talent and and really be um, out in front in the market, but that also just lends to a great opportunity to ensure pay equity across the board being up front and saying, okay, here's what our salary is for the, for the range, regardless of who's applying. Um, we're seeing it as a growing trend across the board nationwide, but seeing states really put that into the political realm is certainly encouraging as we move toward that pay equity. Right. And people don't always think about these laws in terms of DEI, but really pay equity and pay transparency are, are some of the most important steps employers can take to advance their DEI strategy. Sure. No, I agree, Joan. You're exactly right. Um, I would say that pay equity is a huge part of the E and DEI, the equity part. Um, what you were talking about a little bit earlier with the equal paydays, um, I'd like to also point out that mom's equal payday was September 8th this year because moms are paid 58 cents for every dollar paid to dads. And we've not even gotten to a Native women's equal payday, which is November 30th. And Latinas equal payday, which is December 8th, because Native women are paid 50 cents and Latinas are paid 49 cents for every dollar paid to white men. Really, when it comes to closing the wage gap, a woman's worst enemy may be her salary history. That's because when a woman moves to a new employer, the company may look at her past salary, like Joan was talking about, and give a small or moderate increase. But because the woman had a lower baseline to begin with, her salary with the new employer is likely to be lower than the pay of comparable male employees. And so as women move throughout their careers, that effect just snowballs, um, perpetuating the wage gap. And in that way, the use of salary history can cause tangible harm, both to the women who are judged on their past earnings and to the companies that would employ them, that, that are looking at them as applicants and candidates. There was even a case where a woman who was lauded as an ideal candidate wasn't hired by a potential employer because of her salary history. It was so much lower than they expected 
Um, and they indicated that she just must not be as good as she looks because she wasn't paid as they thought that she should be paid by how great her resume looked. Um, so not only did that woman lose her opportunity for that job, but that employer lost what I would probably call a bigger opportunity um, at an ideal candidate um, because of that one factor that was unrelated to her actual abilities. Um, and, and, you know, and they just missed their chance to get a great candidate, candidate and to make it right and to improve their DEI program overall by having that candidate. Yeah, and in such a crucial time when there is a war on talent and making that right hire is so crucial, but then teams were also seeing the value in, in growing a diverse workforce. That's a missed opportunity that these laws and efforts being made can really help fix. Exactly. I mean, that's what these laws are for. They're meant to break those cycles. Um, and I do think it's important that while we've framed all of this in the context of gender, we should note that statistics and research shows that there are notable wage gap among American workers by race and that LGBTQ plus workers earn about 90 cents for every dollar that the typical worker earns. So these laws are really meant to protect a wide range of people um, and further working to ensure pay equity in your organization is just an essential part of that equity element. And you, you just can't expect people to stay if they're not being adequately paid, especially when we are in a war for talent. Somebody can go somewhere else where they are paid for their abilities. You know, people talk about it being just about money, but it's about what that money can do for your life, right? Like it supports your life. It helps you get to your goals in life. And it's also a way that companies acknowledge the value that you have to them as an employee. Yeah. And that's been such a big driver with the great resignation over the last two years, uh, a sense of value, a sense of worth and a sense of appreciation from their employers. Again, the companies, the organizations that are recognizing that and really making efforts to ensure that their employees, that their talent do feel valued, it's only strengthening their employee retention, their corporate culture, and just really making for a better workplace experience. And now a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of the HR Works podcast is done in partnership with the team at HR Hero. Streamline your organization's HR tasks. HR Hero provides need-to-know regulatory information in an actionable and easy-to-understand way. Leverage the expertise of an established industry leader, saving hours of precious time with compliant, customizable training programs, employee handbooks, and job descriptions. And most of all, gain that peace of mind with ever-changing regulatory requirements and streamline your workflow with HR Hero's tools and resources. Visit hrhero.blr.com to learn more today. And now, back to the episode. So just shifting gears a bit um, and looking at some other trends, Joan, you had mentioned earlier Title VII, which was put in place back in the 60s, that it now includes gender identity. What are some things that employers need to do in the workplace with respect to gender identity? Well, there are uh, several things that employers need to be aware of. Uh, to avoid discrimination. And after that decision by the Supreme Court, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that's the federal agency that enforces Title VII, okay. that agency issued guidance on gender identity discrimination. And one of the things it addressed is the use of an employee's name and pronouns. And what it says is that if someone accidentally uses the wrong name or pronoun 
for a transgender employee, that's not a violation of Title VII. But if someone intentionally and repeatedly uses the wrong name or pronouns, that can contribute to a hostile work environment. And that means it can constitute unlawful harassment. The other thing employers need to be aware of is that their dress codes should allow employees to dress in a way that's consistent with the employee's gender identity. Same is true for the use of facilities like restrooms. The EEOC's position is that employers must allow an employee to use the facilities that correspond to the employee's gender identity. So those are just a few things. Interesting. And Celeste, why are pronouns so important and sharing pronouns so important in efforts to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion to the forefront in workplaces? So um, one thing is, you know, research shows that millennials and Generation Z employees are more likely to view gender not as a set or binary thing, but as a continuum that some experience in flux. And now listen, this Gen Xer, um, it took, that was a mouthful and it, it's a brainful and that whole concept, like it, the whole, you know, gender is not binary, but it's a continuing that some continuum that some experience in flux. That's, it's a hard concept. And it's something that, you know, I would encourage everybody that is in charge of a DEI program, especially, or in HR, um, to really try to study and understand, um, so that's just my little soapbox aside. Um, but these Gen Xers and millennials are also more likely to personally know someone who uses gender neutral pronouns um, or be someone who uses gender neutral pronouns. Um, and while it may seem strange or uncomfortable at first, it's really important because using someone's preferred name and pronouns is just one of the most simple and effective ways to show respect in the workplace and to help employees who do not fit traditional notions of gender feel accepted and supported. Absolutely. I mean, it just, it costs nothing. Um, it requires very little effort and it just, it says a lot. Another thing, allowing employees to add their pronouns to their email signatures is another simple, no expense way to signal to your workforce in the outside world as well that your business has an inclusive culture um, and it respects every individual's gender identity. Not only can that help make current employees and contacts feel safe and respected, that message of inclusivity um, may be an advantage when recruiting new workers or when recruiting new business because they see it's, it's a flag, you know, it's a flag of allyship that they see very easily. But there is something really important that I want to point out about that. I hope you notice that I said that you can allow employees to add pronouns. I would caution employers not to require employees to add pronouns. When it's a free choice for employees to include or not include pronouns, the inclusion can be, like I said, a quick and clear flag to your LGBTQIA plus employees, customers, and contacts, indicating that a person is an ally. On the opposite side, when you require all employees to give your pronouns or give their pronouns, it's no longer a way to signal allyship. Requiring people to include their pronouns can make some people uncomfortable or even angry. And um, I've got a really great story about that. Um, I was at a conference. I saw Ben Green of BG Trans Talks. Um, he's the first person I ever heard offer this insight. 
And he explained from a personal experience that as a trans man, when people first started sharing their pronouns on name tags and in email signatures, he was just elated because it would signal somebody was an ally. Um, and it was somebody he was safe with and somebody he could maybe let his guard down a little bit with. Um, but then he was in a work setting, communicating with someone whose email signature included pronouns. And, you know, he took that as that positive flag. So when that person made a comment revealing that they were not, in fact, an ally and, in fact, really resented being forced to include pronouns in the email signature, it was a blow to Ben. And it, you know, kind of it really shook him in um, and it was an awkward moment for him. And that's not an experience you want to replicate in your company on either side. You don't want to have an employee feel exposed and vulnerable as Ben did. And you don't want to have an employee feel resentful or forced to be part of something that they don't want to be a part of, like, you know, the person he had that encounter with. And finally, it's important to note that you may have employees who are just still figuring it all out or don't want to be forced to reveal, you know, reveal their identity in that public way. So, um, yeah, just don't require employees to re include their pronouns. I think that's some very good, safe advice there, Celeste. And again, it, you don't want to create a response of it being a counterproductive effort. You, again, want this to be a safe and comfortable space for all your employees to be themselves. Exactly. Joan, I thought what you mentioned too was interesting in that if there are mistakes made in the workplace in using someone's incorrect pronouns, that doesn't automatically fall into Title VII. It's more when there's clear intent. Exactly. Right. Like everyone makes mistakes, but I think there's opportunities to be very clear and upfront and explicit with the pronouns you prefer. And that makes it much easier just to navigate throughout the workforce. Yep, I agree. You know, it has to do with the intentional and the repeated use. You're purposely um, not using the person's uh, name and pronoun. And that's, that's, a, that's very different from an honest mistake. Right. Which we're all prone to. We're all human. Yep. Exactly, Josh. And I would say, you know, I'd add one more thing to that, you know. We've had, I've had people ask me like, well, well, what do I do when I use, if I accidentally use the wrong pronoun? You know, and these are, you know, very good intention people who are devastated when they make that mistake. And the thing is like, you can't remember everybody's name, right? Like, so if you use the wrong name, what do you do? You say, I'm sorry. And you use the right name. And then you probably remember because you were embarrassed the last time and you don't use the wrong name again, but it's just, it's all about the intention and just trying to make that honest effort. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with the efforts being put behind driving so many DEI initiatives and LBGTQ initiatives, how does that work in tandem with religious freedoms in the workplace? Can those two coexist? It can be challenging because on the one hand, you have employees' rights to religious accommodation. On the other hand, you have employees' rights related to gender identity or sexual orientation, both protected by Title VII. And Title VII requires employers to provide reasonable accommodation unless doing so would be an undue hardship. And an undue hardship for a religious accommodation is anything that's more than a de minimis burden, which is like more than an ordinary administrative cost on the employer's business. Very different standard than the reasonable accommodation um, undue hardship standard for disability accommodations, even though they use the same term. Anyway, as a result, in many situations, an employer could deny religious accommodations because of the difficulty or expense, but employees with seemingly opposite positions can work together. 
Uh, there have been a couple court decisions and some EEOC guidance that can be helpful to employers. There was one case where a federal district court found that an employer wasn't required to accommodate an employee who opposed the employer's practice of displaying a pride flag during Pride Month. And the court said that just expecting the employee to attend work in the same location where the pride flag was didn't amount to asking him to adhere to a conflicting employment requirement. In another case, there were two employees who refused to wear uh, an employer-issued apron that had a multicolored heart on it because they saw it as a symbol of support for the LGBTQ community and refused to wear it because of their religious beliefs. What the court said was the employer's asked for the case to be dismissed and the court said no, um, which means the case will go to a jury trial because in this case, there may be an issue whether it would have been an undue hardship for the employer to grant the accommodation request. One employee offered to buy her own apron and one employee wanted to wear her name tag over the heart. So employers can try to find a solution that accommodates an employee's religious beliefs without infringing on the rights of LGBTQ employees. And as an example, the judge in that case with the multicolored heart said, if you allowed the employees not to wear the symbol by itself, that wouldn't be considered unlawful harassment for LGBTQ employees. So from that perspective, it wouldn't have been an undue hardship for the employer to accommodate the employees. But you can see there are lots of lots of moving parts. And the EEOC has said an employer can require its employees to treat other employees with respect as required by the employer's diversity policy, but you kind of wander into infringing on an employee's religious practices if you require them to do something like um, sign the policy saying that they affirm what's in it. That came up in a case. So it could be tricky for employers to navigate the terrain, but if the focus stays on maintaining a respectful workplace, that can help keep some of the issues in perspective. Yeah, it's an evolving understanding. The, the guardrails are kind of taking shape as we go. Yes. But as long as there's a clear end goal there, that really will, will help a lot of organizations maybe navigate some of those challenges. Celeste, are you seeing that, that there may be some hurdles along the way, but as long as there's a good purpose ahead, that, that it really helps drive diversity initiatives with companies? For sure. Yeah. No, these hurdles are no reason to shy away from your DEI initiatives, especially in the LGBTQIA plus area. Instead, you know, as Jonah's saying, you consider each accommodation request independently. You look at the unique facts of every situation and you know that no one size fits all response will achieve what you need in your DEI program. There is no one size fits all in DEI. So when an employee requests a religious accommodation, you have to consider it, but you aren't required to provide the specific solution requested. And, you know, even the employee's ideal accommodation, so long as the one you select is reasonable. So, you know, an example, an employee's request to avoid actively participating in LGBTQIA plus inclusion initiatives during Pride Month. That might be reasonable, you know, like you don't have to come to the luncheon we're having or, you know, the walk that we're having or whatever extracurricular type of activity or non-work related activity that we're having. Um, But transferring an employee to a role that doesn't require interaction with coworkers because of their LGBTQIA plus status 
that is not a reasonable accommodation. So you just have to look at every situation and approach it in a way that best fits that situation. Got it. Um, and one way to kind of help maybe cut these situations off at the pass or make them less confrontational or less heated is to have a training program that demystifies different groups, underlying tenants and culture, whether that's, you know, on religious backgrounds or LGBTQIA backgrounds. Um, and that will go a long way towards increasing understanding and bridging the perpetual chasm that only widens unless you continue to make efforts to bring people together. Like you've got to start somewhere and try to help, like I said, bridge the gap. Um, that's what we're trying to do and help people see that you're all, especially in the workplace, um, you know, even if we can't all be working towards a common goal in the world, you know, like world peace or something, um, in the workplace, you are working towards a common goal. So focus on how you can do that. That's another way to move forward. Yeah, it's some great advice. As we've seen with so many initiatives, learning and development programs are a great way for organizations to offer that resource to their employees to really create a safe and productive learning space for your employee base to, to really become educated on these important topics. And again, just create some familiarity with the topics that may be foreign to many employees. That's some great advice there, Celeste. Certainly, DEI training is becoming a popular topic across workforces, but are there any states where maybe that is becoming more challenging for employers than others? Yep. There is a new state law in Florida. It took effect on July 1st of this year, and it has the potential to affect DEI training by employers. Um, the governor refers to the law as the Stop Woke Act, which stands for Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, and the law applies to schools as well as, as to employers. And essentially, it says uh, it prohibits employers from requiring employees to attend training that includes information on things like institutional racism and unconscious bias related to race, color, sex, or national origin. Not surprisingly, the law was challenged by several Florida businesses that said the law limits their freedom of expression in violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And in August, a federal district court judge ordered a temporary injunction blocking enforcement of the law until the lawsuit is decided. But the injunction doesn't stop individuals from bringing private lawsuits based on the law. It makes it a little more difficult. And in addition, the state has started the process to appeal the decision to the 11th Circuit. So there's no legal conclusion to this matter yet. And employers that have employees in Florida should know the risks when they require DEI training, and they might consider delaying diversity training until a final court decision is issued. Okay, interesting. And that's just employees in Florida are not required to take training, but it can still be provided. It just, again, can't be a requirement, correct? Right. There is an exception in the law that says if it's not, if it's presented objectively and uh, it's not kind of pushed on the employees like required, that, that that's an exception. But the law doesn't explain how employers might do that and there hasn't been any guidance issued. So it's still kind of um, uncharted. Still yeah. evolving, still yeah, taking shape. Exactly. And Celeste, did you have any thoughts on that from the workplace diversity standpoint? Oh, sure. You know, so. So far, like Jen said, Florida is the only state with this kind of law. Um, we are really looking forward to seeing how this plays out in the courts because um, it's our position that training on diversity issues 
is really important. And that includes especially unconscious bias training. And I think it's important here to say that unconscious bias isn't something that's inherently good or bad in and of itself. Like a lot of things, it's how we act on our unconscious biases that can cause problems or can, you know, lead to good things. Um, Unconscious bias is just a scientific fact. Um, Everyone has unconscious or subconscious preferences. And that's because our brains are bombarded by so many pieces of information that um, if we, if the, if our brains couldn't make those shortcuts, those preferences, those biases, and learn from the past experiences, we would be constantly overwhelmed and unable to function. So those shortcuts can be everything from how our body breathes without us consciously having to say, you know, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, to unconscious biases that affect our preferences and behaviors towards others. Um, Often, I mean, more often than not, we aren't aware of those shortcuts or biases and are only able to identify those behaviors when it's pointed out by someone or the behaviors that result from the biases when it's pointed out by someone. And sometimes, you know, not even then. Um, But when those biases show up in the workplace, there can be real problems, um, both for, you know, people on a personal level, but also they can really affect the organization, you know, everything from hiring and promotions to conflicts. And look, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that I have seen some of those bad examples of unconscious bias training where participants are called out and put on the spot in what does seem like an effort to make them feel bad. Um, But I would argue that that is a rare occurrence and certainly isn't the kind of training that we would advocate for for in the workplace. Instead, effective training looks at how people make decisions, you know, what I was talking about earlier, just the scientific root of unconscious bias, um, how that bias shows up in behavior and how to mitigate that behavior, um, especially in the workplace. The training, workplace training, should be focused on helping employees recognize interrupt and counteract their biased behaviors, definitely not on making anybody feel guilty about any unconscious biases that they have. Um, And I would say one more thing to add to this. Finally, it just, it cannot be said enough that bias training has to be paired with action and a long-term commitment to change to be effective. It can only be a part of your DEI program. It has to be backed up by action from the top, you know, Everybody has to have buy-in and everybody has to support the idea that the DEI program is important that it, and that it's important to recognize and interrupt, stop these biases from affecting the workplaces in a negative way. Well said. And it's a great way to really close out here, Celeste. Again, Celeste, Duke, and Joan Farrell joining us from HR Hero. Thank you so much for sharing just some great insight on the trends we're currently seeing in workplace discrimination and DEI efforts within the workforce. I think there's so much to learn there. But um, speaking of training, that's something that HR Hero offers as a product from the marketplace. Celeste, if you don't mind, uh, could you share a bit more about HR Hero, some things you're excited about coming up and really what our listeners could learn and utilize HR Hero for and if they're interested where they can go to learn more? Well, sure. So, um, you know, I'll just start where we ended. We have some great unconscious bias training on HERO. It's a two-part series. The first part focuses on um, what is unconscious bias, how to recognize it in yourself, 
in ways that you can interrupt those unconscious biases. It's, it's for everybody in the workplace. The second course focuses on supervisors. And so, for example, how unconscious bias can show up in hiring and specific concrete steps that supervisors, your supervisors can take to eliminate that unconscious bias in the hiring process. Um, and now going back to things that we talked about before, um, we have what we call our state law chart builder, which has a equal pay entry. And so if you want to know what your equal pay or what aspect of equal pay equity laws your state has, you can go to our state law chart builder and pull up your state in the equal pay section, and you'll get a quick summary. And if you need to learn more, you can go to our topic pages, which go in depth. And we have equal pay topic pages that will go in depth into um, all the different laws that your states have. And one other thing that um, I mentioned earlier with the hair discrimination that you would want to look at your grooming and appearance, personal appearance policy. Well, we have a model, a template grooming and appearance policy, along with, I think, about 90 others, but that, you know, can help you. They're a good place to start. And then you can modify them for your specific workplace needs and always using the state law chart builder and the topic pages to make sure that they match up to the laws in your state. Okay. Well, for any of our listeners who are interested in learning more about all the great products and offerings that HR Hero can provide for DEI training, guidance, and analysis, we recommend you going to www.hrhero.com where you can get all that great information and engage with these great products as well as all the great information that Celeste and Joan offer on a regular basis in terms of analysis and editorial content. Look, Celeste, Joan, thank you again for joining the HR Works podcast. Before we wrap, I'd like to learn a bit about what motivates us in our day-to-day. So Celeste, let's start with you. When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, what's the first thing that gets you motivated to start your day? Well, I think we need to back up. The thing that motivates me to wake up in the morning and put my feet on the floor is an 80-pound Doberman Pitbull mix named Randy, who is telling me it is time for a walk. Okay. And so that's what we get up every morning and we go for a walk and it just gives me that time and quiet headspace to kind of think about lining everything up and what needs to be done. That'll do it. You're you're on Randy's <laughs> timeline there. I am. I like it. And Joan, how about yourself? What's the, the one thing that really gets you motivated to get started? Oh, I would say my family. They are a lot of fun, especially my grandchildren. And they get me to try things that I might not otherwise try, like cool soccer moves, which aren't so cool when I do them, and uh, trying to make things that we see on baking shows. You know, again, not always successful, but almost always lots of fun. All right. Well, that's a great motivator again, and I'll have to learn a couple of those cool soccer moves from you at some point, Jen. So, uh, Joan Celeste, thank you both again for joining the HR Works podcast, sharing some great insight on, again, what we can be looking at in the world of workplace discrimination and diversity, sharing some great trends, and again, just providing some great insight. We look forward to keeping this conversation going um, and hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Joan. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HR Works podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible. 